As we gather together to worship God, we hear some words from Psalm 96. Sing a new song to the Lord. Sing to the Lord all the world. Sing to the Lord and praise him. Proclaim every day the good news that he has saved us. Proclaim his glory to the nations, his mighty deeds to all people. And now let's come to God in prayer. Let's pray together. We come to worship our God who has spoken truth to the world. The truth we know as Christ who has given us life and freedom. We come as people who are part of the world, who are formed and shaped by cultures and traditions of which we are largely unaware. We come as people called to be in the world, but not of it, who are transformed and informed by the good news of Christ and the indwelling of the Spirit. We come as people who are commissioned to be salt and light in the world, who will transform and influence the cultures of which we are part, speaking and being good news, where it sometimes seems only bad news is heard. We come in awe and wonder to the God who is intimately involved in creation, and who is also beyond our wildest imaginings. To the God whose grace, mercy and love know no limits, who has, in Christ, once and for all defeated the power of sin and death, and who, as spirit, leads us into new understandings and expressions of discipleship. Forgive us, God, where our own cultural blindness has led us to confuse your good news with our socially conditioned norms. Forgive us where our own insecurity has led us to attempt to defend you against a perceived threat of other worldviews or understandings. Forgive us when we have claimed the moral high ground blithely unaware of our own sinfulness and finitude. Forgive us and set us free to live more fully the good news which delights and inspires our discipleship. May our worship be pleasing to you and may our lives reflect your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our first reading this morning is from 1 Kings chapter 8, starting at verse 22. 1 Kings 8, verse 22. Then in the presence of the people, Solomon went and stood in front of the altar, where he raised his arms and prayed, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or in earth below. You keep your covenant with your people. And show them your love when they live in wholehearted obedience to you. Then at verse 41. When a foreigner who lives in a distant land hears of your fame and of the great things you have done for your people and comes to worship you and to pray at this temple 
Listen to his prayer. In heaven where you live, hear him and do what he asks you to do, so that all the peoples of the world may know you and obey you as your people Israel do. Then they will know that this temple I have built is a place where you are to be worshipped. When you command your people to go into battle against their enemies and they pray to you, wherever they are, facing this city which you have chosen and this temple which I have built for you, listen to their prayers. Hear them in heaven and give them victory. When your people sin against you and there is no one who does not sin, and in your anger you let your enemies defeat them and take them as prisoners to some other land, even if that land is far away, Listen to your people's prayers. If they are in that land, they repent and pray to you, confessing how sinful and wicked they have been. Hear their prayers, O Lord. If in that land they truly and sincerely repent and pray to you as they face toward this land which you gave to our ancestors, this city which you have chosen, and this temple which I have built for you, then listen to their prayers. In your home in heaven, hear them and be merciful to them. Forgive all their sins and their rebellion against you and make their enemies treat them with kindness. And our second reading is from Galatians chapter 1, starting at the first verse. From Paul, whose call to be an apostle did not come from human beings or by human means, but from Jesus Christ, And God the Father, who raised him from death. All the believers who are here, join me in sending greetings to the churches of Galatia. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. In order to set us free from this present evil age, Christ gave himself for our sins, in obedience to the will of our God and Father. To God be the glory for ever and ever. Amen. I'm surprised at you. In no time at all you are deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and accepting another gospel. Actually, there is no other gospel, but I say this because there are some people who are upsetting you and are trying to change the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel that is different from the one we preach to you, may he be condemned to hell. We have said it before and now I say it again. If anyone preaches to you a gospel that is different from the one you accepted, may he be condemned to hell. Does this sound as if I'm trying to win human approval? No, indeed. What I want is God's approval. Am I trying to be popular with people? If I were still trying to do so, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let me tell you, my friends, that the gospel I preach is not of human origin, I did not receive it from any human being, nor did anyone teach it to me. It was Jesus Christ himself who revealed it to me. Amen. I wonder who likes sending or receiving postcards. Anybody? A few people. It seems to be going out of fashion, doesn't it, now, to send postcards. It used to be when I went off on holiday, I took a great long list of addresses and a pile of stamps, because I mostly go on holiday in Britain, and every evening after tea would write some postcards and send them off. There's something about postcards, isn't there? Lovely, colourful pictures and messages from people who we love, um, just telling us something about what they've been doing. We look at the pictures and 
we enjoy them, or I enjoy them anyway. And then we read this message, which is necessarily brief on the back. I think the metaphor of a postcard is a fairly useful one uh, for the next few weeks as we start to explore together part of one of what is generally accepted to be one of the earliest of Paul's letters. I think, well, what would we write on a postcard? And if this is kind of a postcard to Galatia, what is it that he's saying? The opening of the letter, though, it's remarkably stark, isn't it? It differs from many of Paul's other letters and the pastoral epistles in that it doesn't begin with some nice, friendly greeting and some praise for the people. It is a very strong tone. In fact, it's quite aggressive. It kind of feels to me as if Paul is having a bit of a rant at his readers, saying, I'm the one you should listen to, never mind them. These are the people who've come with some other gospel. Ignore them, it's me who is the one you should listen to. One of the dangers of reading these verses out of context and in isolation is that what we can wind up doing if we're not careful is we project onto what Paul is saying or read into what Paul is saying our idea of what is authentic gospel. And that might have far more to do with what we think than what Paul was actually referring to. If we're going to make sense or some sense of this tirade he seems to be having, we first of all need to be aware of the context into which he was writing, both in terms of the date and the culture into which he was speaking. Now, geography is not my strong point, but I did find a map um, which shows us where Galatia was, which is here. And Tarsus, where Paul originated from, is here. Syria is there. Um, Greece is over there. So Galatia is actually part of what nowadays we know as Turkey. So that's the sort of area that it was that Paul was whoops, writing to people in. It was a very cosmopolitan area. The people who lived there, some of them had a Celtic ancestry. The Celts from beyond the Rhine, as well as coming west and north into Britain and kind of settling in Cornwall and Wales and Scotland and Ireland, also went east and slightly south. And some of them wound up in what we now call Turkey, in Galatia. And in fact, the name Galatia may have connections with Gaul, and so which was, I think, related to Gallic. So these were sort of Gaulish people who'd migrated there around about 200 years before the time of Christ. There were also, sorry, that was three centuries before the time of Christ, there was also a substantial Jewish population who'd moved there around about 200 years before Christ. Add to that the presence of Roman troops and passing traders And it was in a place in which questions about what was and was not acceptable in the early church were almost inevitable. You had got Jewish believers in Jesus. You had got 
Gaulish Celtic believers in Jesus. You had got Roman believers in Jesus and Greek and Asian and who knows what else. Whilst precise dating of this letter or any of the letters is not possible, and there are different scholarly opinions, it seems that it most likely corresponds to the time described more or less in in Acts 11 to Acts 15. This was a time in which debates and squabbles about such topics as circumcision and dietary regulations were prevalent. In fact, if you've got a good memory, we looked at some of those chapters of Acts a few months back. A time in which both Peter and Paul found themselves challenged about what was and what was not acceptable within the early church. And this culminated in the Council of Rome, recorded in Acts 15. Whether the letter to Galatia was before that or just after that meeting, it's quite clear, as we go on to read it, and we will in the next few weeks, that the same issues were proving problematic and devices in the emerging churches of Galatia. Paul has, as the letter will tell us in later chapters, brought a gospel that is inclusive rather than exclusive, at least so much in terms of race and gender and status. A gospel that is free from the minutiae of Pharisaic legalism on matters of dietary law or ritual cleanliness. A gospel that sees incorporation into Christ, not by means of permanent, physical, male-only ritual, but by the fleeting, transient, symbolic, and available to all, baptism. If we take the letter at face value in the light of this contextual information, then we begin to understand why Paul goes off on one at the believers in Galatia. The model of church that he attempted to establish is now threatened by other people who bring a gospel that may be doctrinally pure, but undermines the new community that is already transcending culturally conditioned assumptions and norms and tries to go back to something that is pure. Now, I'm quite sure that none of you need me to tell you that the word gospel has its origins in the first century practice where the term referred to an announcement of military victories. A herald would come along and say, good news, or gospel, or euangelion, we beat the enemy, we, we are victorious. The way the church appropriated that term is not entirely unproblematic, given its military and kind of fighting background. But it does allow us to begin to think, well, what kind of victory is it that we are announcing? What is the good news that we have to share in the context of which we are part here in Glasgow or wherever home may happen to be? Because it's quite clear from what Paul has to say that not everything that claims to be good news is good news. Not everything spoken in the name of Christ is actually consistent with God's kingdom of shalom. Not everyone who claims to speak truth actually 
does so. In fact, what Paul has to say is more like bad news than good news for his hearers. They must have been quite shocked, quite threatened by those opening words from the man they knew, and I expect held in quite high esteem. It's bad news, says Paul. You're not sticking with the gospel that I announced. This gospel that I announced that crossed the cultural boundaries, that included as equals all kinds of people. This gospel carrying on the radical work of Christ. No, you've been led astray by some other men, probably seemingly very godly men, who've undermined that and tried to Judaize, maybe even to Hellenize, the little churches. Subtle and probably scripturally justified changes that were the leading the churches backwards in bigotry rather than forward in faith. If I'm allowed to steal a cliche from the Church of England. See, if you were in England, you'd have all laughed because you'd have understood that one, but you don't, so that's fine. But the churches were going backwards in bigotry rather than forward in faith. If Paul is railing against this bad news about legalism, about Phariseeism, about exclusion, about going backwards, where are we going to find good news? Well, it might surprise you that I think the good news is to be found in our Old Testament reading. The book of Kings is certainly one of the most difficult books in the Bible. Two volumes that give us accounts of kings who seem to get an awful lot wrong. So we need to have a little think about the context and then allow ourselves to see some aspects of God's character which are mentioned in there. And I think they're good news, not just for us, but for all people. The first 11 chapters of 1 Kings concern the reign of Solomon. Solomon was the son of David and we remember Solomon for what? See if anybody's actually like the temple and wisdom. Yeah, the two things that we particularly remember Solomon for: his great wisdom, he prayed for wisdom, and for the building of the temple. You see, we don't actually mention so much about his not so good side, his um, love of the ladies, his uh, rather dodgy alliances with other nations that ultimately led to his downfall and the beginning of a divided kingdom into Judah and Israel, which brought incredible heartache and strife for everybody. Solomon's wisdom couldn't protect him from his own shortcomings. But nonetheless, in this passage that we've just heard, we hear his dedication prayer at the kind of the opening ceremony of the temple. And in that we see evidence of good news delivered by a fallible and flawed man, not just for the people of Israel, but for those other nations and races who will be attracted by Israel's God. I imagine Solomon opening the temple was one of the proudest moments of his reign, a real highlight in the lives of the people of Israel, All this work had come to fruition. The promise that God had given to David had found its fulfillment. 
And so Solomon raises his arms to lead the people in prayer. A prayer in which he shows real insight into human nature and some aspects of God's nature which cannot be changed even when we mess up. It's a beautiful temple. The Ark of Covenant is central, containing the inscribed stones. And so he basically says, let us pray. He speaks first of God's faithfulness. The covenant, symbolized by the carefully preserved pieces of stone held in an ornate, specially crafted box, has been upheld by God. The completion of the temple and its dedication are evidence of this faithfulness. The promises made to David are fulfilled. A God who is dependable and reliable who can be trusted to keep promises made to mortals, is very good news. In a world where a belief in capricious gods whose every whim had to be met in order to secure favor, Yahweh was different. Here was a God whose essential nature didn't change, who wasn't for you one minute and against you the next. Here was a God who freely entered into a covenant relationship with frail, flawed human beings and who even loved them. A God who gave rather than a God who demanded. This faithful, dependable God worshipped by the people of Israel and in whose honour the great and beautiful temple had been built inevitably attract the interest of people of other nations and other races who would find such a deity compelling. In a world of uncertainty, a dependable deity, a reliable God, was very good news indeed. So a God who is faithful, consistent and trustworthy is good news, but that's not all. Our reading skipped over part of Solomon's prayer, where on behalf of the Israelites, he offered confession and repentance for their sins, along with numerous numerous requests for God to hear his prayers. You see, underlying this prayer is a confidence that God will not only hear the prayers, but will respond. Prayer isn't a one-way street, us just talking to God. But this faithful covenant God, who is dependable and in essence unchangeable, will be moved in some way to act for the good of those who pray. People talk about God as immutable and impassive. I'm not really sure that's what scripture tells us. God at heart is unchanging, but God cares and God responds. This isn't some remote, disinterested deity. God not just hears the prayers, God listens to the prayers, and God responds to the prayers. Solomon's prayer doesn't stop there, though. He speaks of the attractive lure of this God who is dependable and loving. And he says, and um, while you're at it, God, please listen to the prayers of other nations to other people who don't yet know you and draw them into the ranks of the believers. 
These would be the people who in time would come to worship in the court of the Gentiles at the temple. They wanted to worship the God of Israel. This is the place where Jesus did an awful lot of his teaching. So here is good news for the believer and the inquirer and the seeker. God will listen to all of those. doesn't wait till you believe before God listens. That's just nonsense. God listens and God responds. But it doesn't stop even there. It would be perfectly possible for God to be dependable and to listen carefully and just say, well, you made your bed. You lie in it. You abused your freedom. You lived the consequences. You sinned. You broke the covenant. Game over. There is still more good news in this prayer. Solomon has a good understanding of human nature, his own included, I guess. He doesn't say if people sin. He says when people sin. And he recognizes that freedom demands responsibility, that choices do have consequences, and that God is not about to intervene and make everything all okay every single time we make a bad decision. People mess up. Life gets messy. messy. Innocent people are hurt along the way. And chaos is always only ever a butterfly's wing beat away. But this God who is faithful, who listens, is also the God of new beginnings, of fresh starts. The God whose characteristics include forgiveness and mercy. It is not the case, and this is really bad theology that I sometimes hear, that God lets off the people who have the correct doctrines or the people who fulfill the right rituals. It's not like that. God has clear standards. But God shows kindness, generosity, magnanimity. I shouldn't write down these big words. I can't say them. And love to all people. You see, what satisfies Yahweh is not just right believing, though that is important, and not just right behaving, though that should follow, but right relating. The honest and open, transformative covenant relationship lived out in all its complexity. Little churches in Galatia were at risk of losing the new insights into the nature of God they'd been taught by Paul and his companions. The insights revealed in the work and person of Christ, who crossed those cultural boundaries, who spoke to women, who touched lepers, who healed a Roman uh, servant, and so on and so forth. They were in danger of losing all of that and slipping into a legalistic, exclusive parody of a gospel based on correct outward observance rather than inner transformation. If we could send them a postcard this week, perhaps this is the message we should write on it. Good news. God is faithful. God listens and responds. God is merciful.
And perhaps we too need to hear this news and be drawn afresh into the love of the one true God. For here is good news. Our covenant God is faithful. Our faithful God listens. And our listening God responds in mercy. Amen. And so we come to our prayers for others and for one another. Let us pray. God, our creator, our redeemer, and our sustainer, we thank you that you keep your covenant of love with your creation. But we confess this morning that we do not always sense that love or recognize it for what it is. And so we pray for all who feel that they have been abandoned by you, for those who have suffered much and whose pain is made all the worse by the conviction that they are alone in their suffering. We pray for those who believe that there is no one who cares about them or really understands what they're going through. Lord, this morning, may each of us hear afresh the good news that you have promised never to leave us. May the knowledge of your love for us be a quiet conviction deep within each one of us. May we sense again your loving presence closer than our next breath, nearer even than our next thought. Faithful God, hear our prayer. We pray too for those who feel that they are beyond the pale who believe that they've done something so terrible that there's no way back to you, that their sin is so great that it can't be forgiven, that somehow they are outside the scope of your love and your mercy. And yet, Lord, we know that none of us gets what we really deserve that all of us stand in need of your forgiveness and the forgiveness of one another. This morning, may we hear again the good news of your unconditional love and mercy and help us to follow your example and forgive freely those whom we believe have let us down or hurt us in some way. 
merciful God, hear our prayer. And finally we pray for all who call to you from the depths of hurt or loneliness or pain, but who feel that their prayers go unanswered or even unheard. No matter how fervently they cry to you, you do not seem to respond. This morning, may each of us hear again the good news that you have heard our prayers and you have already answered. That when we were lost, you came to find us and to bring us home. You came to be one of us And you still come, and you will come. For you have heard the deepest longings of our heart, the prayers that go deeper than words, and you have answered. And as far as we are able, help us to be the answers to one another's prayers. Listening and responding, God, hear our prayer, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God of Jesus, we have experienced your mercy. May we show mercy to others. We have brought you our prayers. May we listen for your voice and to the voices of others. We have spoken of your faithfulness. May we be faithful disciples now and always.